ending to a song, will you meet me here again? I think that's what we all need, to be able to say, Lord, will you meet me here again? And the Lord comes to our way. He comes our way. He, he, he doesn't always wait for us to come running back to him, as long as we're calling out. It's kind of ironic we're going into the book of Jonah. We are going to be in the book of Jonah, but we're also, like I said, we don't have the scripture up on the screen, so we're also going to head first to Luke 11 and then 2 Kings 14, and then we're going to jump to Jonah. Uh, so if you can flip fast or hold your fingers in places. So Luke 11, 2 Kings 14, and then we'll be in Jonah. So, I, you know, my, the PowerPoint blew up this morning. The computer gave a warning, security warning, going, you can't use these pictures. And I'm like, why? They're my pictures. And, and it kind of goes with the old fish story. You know, I was going to start out with, what is the biggest fish that you've ever caught? And then I was going to show a picture of me and a big fish. But now you'll just have to take my word for it, that my fish was this big. Okay. I got another picture. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Bob. I, Bob's over there going like this. And then I got another picture of the, the fish is this big, you know. And I had pictures to prove it. Brandon even has a fish that's like this big that he caught. Um, and I was going to show those pictures, but now maybe I'll get them up next week. We'll see. But, you know, what, what, think about the biggest fish that you've ever seen or maybe eaten. You know, I was in Angola, Africa at one point and on a mission trip, and, and uh, literally uh, the place that uh, we were going to have dinner, we, we brought two cooks with us on our mission trip because just trying to figure out how not to get sick, you know what I'm saying? So we're in Africa, and uh, on, the, on the west coast of Africa, and uh, they had this nice, big, beautiful fish that they brought, and... Uh, the problem is we were up like on the sixth floor where we we're going to have dinner. So the cooks went early to get up there and start preparing it. And they pulled out this fish and they're like, we have no water to clean this fish. Because all the water lines had been crushed in the, in the city of uh, Luanda. I mean, uh, uh, um, is it Luanda? Yeah, Luanda with an L. Luanda. Uh, all, the, all the, you know, fresh water had been, been crushed, all those lines and all the sewage lines had been crushed. So literally they had to go like get the water each day so they would carry their water up the stairs every day so they get up there and they're like we don't have any water to clean this fish and then they go I don't know if it'll fit in the oven you know they're kind of freaked out and stuff eventually they, they cooked the whole thing and it was a lot of fun and Cena uh, one of our, our cooks she was uh, uh, they did a lot of other things other than just cooking but they handled that but but uh, you know she's from uh, China so she's just like oh good the eye okay Okay, um, that's all I'm going to say about that. I, I just thought that was, I just threw that in there for no reason. I mean, they eat every part of the fish, you know, and it, it was a lot of fun. But, you know, this story, this book that's in the Bible is about a fish, but one that you've probably never eaten before, you know? Uh, anybody eat well before? You know, we kind of don't do that anymore. Uh, over in Japan, they still kind of eat well meat here and there. But, but we're going to dive into this book this morning. But before that, we're going to get into Luke 11. And thank you for the one person that laughed about diving into the book when we're talking about the fish story. Okay, so Luke 11, it says, verse 29, As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. Now, would we agree with that statement, thinking about our own generation? Absolutely. So you can see things don't really change that much. But Jesus was saying these sayings that we tend not to say out loud. We tend to not, you know, tell people, 
this is how it is. You know, usually if the crowds increase, we're like, good job, everybody, and, and you know, and all that. But, but instead, he's out there going, you are a bunch of wicked people. Well, that goes over well, doesn't it? I mean, think about the, the churches that, that, that truly dive into the word and, and teach the word versus somebody who just is, is kind of, you know, platitudes of everybody is great, everybody's wonderful, and these motivational sermons and all that. Well, okay, motivational sermons aren't bad if they're based in scripture, but you also have to, we're learning what God's trying to teach us along the way. And it's like a parent that's trying to correct us sometimes. And there's love and there's grace and there's mercy, but God at the same time wants to point out, this is how you can improve upon your life. This is the correct path to go down on. And this is what Jesus is trying to do. But what was the, the situation here is they were pushing him for a sign. But instead of, of, of listening and implementing what, what he said, uh, you know, about their lives and how they could change their life, they were saying basically, prove it to me. Prove it to me. I don't care what you say or how you live. You need to prove it to me. So Jesus says, he goes on in Luke uh, 11, and ask for a sign, talking about the wicked generation, but none of you will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the, you know, was assigned to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man to this generation. And then verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus went on to say in Matthew 12, 40, uh, in the same way, but he added something. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, as I've studied this book over the years, it's a fascinating look at the historical figure of Joseph, I mean Jonah, and him being a type of Jesus. In other words, Christ being foreshadowed in the Old Testament by Jonah. So I'm not saying that Jonah was Christ. I'm saying he was just a representation of Christ at that point. Jonah is one of these books that unbelievers love to, to point to, love to jump up and down, and, 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 and they just love this book. They say, surely there's no way you can believe a disobedient man was thrown out of a boat and a huge fish just happened to be right there to swallow him up, and then he would be later thrown up and live to tell the story. And in some ways you kind of go, I can understand that. But they're just so adamant. No way this is fact. And then they usually go to creation at that point. Surely you don't believe a, a, you know, God created this world out of nothing. This is a nice myth. But come on, this is the year 2021. They'll bring up Noah's Ark. Surely you don't believe, a, you know, believe that a man saved his family and it rained for 40 days and, and 40 nights. These are just myths. They're just legends. Surely you do not believe them as fact. We are more reasonable than that, they would say. We believe in evolution because that is a rational belief. <laughs> and if you've studied evolution, you kind of laugh there a little bit because there's leaps Giant leaps, as evolution would say, millions of years of leaps between developments. 
So you're sitting there going, okay, mine is irrational and yours is rational? So as we study Jonah, I want to make it clear. I believe this book is historical fact. I believe this story. Call me naive if you want, but I think it is my only choice as a believer in the one true God. I believe this story for two reasons, and there's multiple other reasons, but let me just state these two. First of all, I think Jesus believed it to be a true story. So therefore, I need to believe it's a true story if Jesus believed it. Because if he believed it was a true story, then I believe it's a true story because Jesus knows he's been there since the beginning of time. I believe that Jesus was the Old Testament God. I believe that he appeared in the Old Testament. I don't believe that Jesus' life started when he was born in Bethlehem. So Jesus believed the story to be true. Of all the Old Testament historical figures that Jesus could have brought up and talked about to illustrate, illustrate his death and his resurrection, he picked the story of Jonah. Now, the other reason I believe the story is true is uh, Jonah was a real guy. He's mentioned in other parts of the Bible. If you go to 2 Kings 14, so if you've got fast fingers, 2 Kings 14, 23. It says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amadi, the prophet from Gath Hefer, or Hefer, however you want to pronounce that. Now, this is probably one of the most boring texts that I can read to you in the Old Testament. You know what I mean? It's just full of stuff like this, where it's just naming this, son of this, son of that person, connected with that person. But the reason why they put these names in there is to say these are real people. You know, we look at scriptures like this, we go, oh, I can just apply that to my life five ways, you know. And, and we just kind of shake our head because we really can't. But I think God put these parts in there because it validates what the scriptures say. It validates that there was a prophet by the name of Jonah that was around. This guy was a real guy who lived. So the story happens between somewhere between 793 and 753 BC. So this is where uh, Job, uh, Jeroboam was in charge of the northern king. And one of the pictures I'd love to put up was, was a, you know, because he was a good news prophet to a bad news king. In other words, he kept saying, oh, I got great news, I got great news. But it was not a good thing. He actually built a second temple up north for the northern kingdoms to, to uh, sacrifice on. And we got pictures of the foundation of this temple that, uh, that you know, has been around for about 3,000 years now. It's pretty cool. If you go to Israel, you'll be able to get, visit that. But it even lists his dad's name and where they were from, Gath Hefer. This town has been, you know, excavated. It's about three miles northwest or northeast of Nazareth. When 750 years later, a little boy would play. And he would grow up, and he would be called Jesus of Nazareth. So since Jonah was a real prophet in Israel, living three miles north of Nazareth, 
and Jesus believed the story to be true, to be history, I don't think any believer, anybody who says, I follow the one true God, can stand up and say, it's just a legend. It's just a story. So we as believers, if it's in the word of God, if Jesus says it, I believe it. I believe it. And so should you. Because if I don't believe it, I contradict Jesus, who I say I believe. Who I say is my savior. Who I say is the one that I follow. That that I put aside my idols and I walk toward Christ. If he says it's true, then it's true. Why would you not want to accept the story as fact? Well, if you accept it, then you have to deal with miracles. And that's a touchy subject. You know what I'm saying? I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and it was a touchy subject. Because the flip side of miracles is you got the guys going out there, you know, doing all these shenanigans, touching people, they're falling over and they're healed. And next week they do the same thing to the same person in a different town. And so, so people ran away from that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? We have to deal with that. We have to believe in a God that's active, a God that's active in our lives, who can touch lives, who can step into history, who can mess with his own creation and change things and do abnormal things that are outside of science because he wants to do it because he is the creator who can call up a fish at the right time to swallow a man that's been thrown out of a boat in the middle of a storm. This is the problem that many Christians have today. We don't believe that our God is a truly active God. We kind of treat it as history. And we don't believe that God can do the same things today that he did back then. We don't believe that our God is active because if he's active, then I have to respond to him. If he's active, then I have a responsibility. And if I respond, he may change my life. But that scares me. Scares me when my life has to change. So as I was studying, it reminded me of the story. A a guy was out fishing, and he was catching fish like you wouldn't believe. And another guy was watching. And this guy keeps, you know, catching these big fish, and he keeps holding them up, and he just tosses them back. And the guy's like, man, I would have kept that one. He catches another big fish, and he holds it up, and he just tosses it back. He's like, man, I would have caught that one. So eventually, you know, he gets to the guy and starts talking to the guy and goes, why are you throwing all those big fish back, and and you kept those little bitty ones? And the guy goes, well, I got an eight-inch pan. So there you go. I know, I just had to throw something in there, you know. Well, this is kind of like that story. If you don't have any use for God who is great enough to accomplish this, we just throw it back. But it's just a story. It's just a story. I don't got use for that because it doesn't fit into my preconceived notion of who God is because I have an eight-inch pan that's full of God. And God's going, I got a bigger pan than that for you. I got a well of a pan. But anyway, okay. So let's turn to Jonah. And if you don't know where it's at, it's right after Obadiah and right before Micah. 
And then, you know, if you can't figure that, that out, you do what I always do. You go to the table of contents and you look it up. Uh, four chapters, only six months to go through probably. Okay, really four weeks. But this is really a different kind of fish story. The big fish that doesn't get away, but neither does the man. You know, usually it's the big fish that gets away. But he doesn't get away, neither does the man. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amadi. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed toward, uh, for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee the Lord. Now, as I read the first three verses, I really kind of uh, needed a map to kind of look at to, to figure out, uh, you know, understand what I just read. Because what God called him to do is to travel 500 miles northeast. So if you were looking at me, west would be this way. So 500 miles northeast, go this way, okay? To northern Iraq, think of the modern city of Mosul, that area, okay? Um, it used to be called Nineveh. It's talked about in Genesis, founded by a man named Nimrod. But instead, what does he do? He goes 60 miles the opposite way to the port of Joppa. And the port of Joppa is still there. You can go there today, go to Israel. I got some beautiful pictures that I wish I could show you, but uh, it didn't work out. But it's still a modern seaport right now. It's just south of Beirut, Lebanon. And there he got on a ship that was headed, okay, so this is 500 miles. He was headed 2,000 miles this way, the opposite way of where he should be going to the coast of Spain to Tarsus. This would be like going across the United States or a little further than that. But here to, here to Houston, I think, is uh, what, uh, 1,500 miles, 1,571 miles, something like that. Be like going the opposite direction. Or like this is God calling you to go preach to Las Vegas and you absolutely hating Las Vegas and you get on a boat and you, you, know, you head to where? Anyone? Hawaii, thank you for the people that understand that one. So verse 3, it says, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for the port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now Jonah, we call him minor prophet. And the reason why we call him minor prophet, it's not because he was a short little small dude or anything like that. No, it was because it's four chapters. It's a small book. A major prophet is like Jeremiah has a large book, or Isaiah, a large book, a lot of writings. Jonah, minor prophet, because we just don't know that much about him. Um, because there's usually very little said about the man. But it's kind of interesting, and those small little books are usually about God, not about man. But here it's kind of the, the, the opposite. There are 48 verses, 1,320 words. And only one of those verses is about the prophecy that Jonah is supposed to go. And really, 47 of the verses really talk about the story of the man himself. The only prophecy comes in chapter 3, verse 4. We'll get there, but it's eight words. Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. So for a prophet, and there's only eight words about his prophecy, it's kind of interesting. The other 47 verses teaches us about the process that Jonah was going through, his relationship with God. 
God's response to his disobedience and his rebellion. The call of God on his life. He will witness the power of God in so many different ways, both to rescue him and to rescue Nineveh. This is personal for Jonah. Just like our story is very personal to us. As we go through this story, we need to figure out where we're at in this story. Are we Jonah? Are we not? Are we the sailors on the boat? Or are we not? Who are we in the story? Because we are experiencing God in a very personal way on a daily basis. And some of us go through rebellions, right? Some of those are personal rebellions. Internal, no one really knows about them. Some of those are external rebellions that everybody can see. And when you come back to the Lord, we praise the Lord for that. We're very excited about that. Because our God is what? A loving God. Our God is what? A forgiving God. Our God is a gracious God. That is the God that we serve. But we are experiencing God act in our lives. We are speaking to God in different ways. So as I read the story, I really relate to it. Now, in the other prophets, you will see a hesitancy to go preach. You see Elijah, uh, he sees the power of God, yet he's afraid to go, you know, he's afraid of the queen, and what does he do? He goes into hiding. He doesn't want to go confront her. Or Isaiah, who says, I can't go preach. I'm a man of unclean lips. Why are you picking me? Pick somebody else who is more worthy. And I think many of us have been in that point where we're sitting there going, well, God, don't you know my sin? I'm not worthy. And God's going, I know your sin. I can see it. But I'm picking you for a reason. Or Moses. When God calls Moses, what is God? You know, he, you know Moses had that stutter. Send somebody else. I, I, I can't speak that well. His reluctance was based on his own inability. But Jonah's different. Jonah doesn't argue with God. I love this. He just runs. He's like, okay, thank you. Can you give me a moment? And he just like takes off. I wonder if he took anything with him. He's like, no way. I am gone. People in Gath Hefer, you know, they're, they're just wondering where he went. Jonah was here. Where's Jonah? I, I don't know. He took off or something. He just disappeared. I mean, you got milk cartons with Jonah's picture, 800 number. Okay, anyway. I mean, he's gone. He doesn't tell everybody. He just leaves. So we have to ask the question, why? Why does he run? What happened in his life to make him run? I mean, he had already prophesied to King Jeroboam, the evil king. And what he prophesied came true. I mean, wouldn't you think this would give you power, give you kind of like standing, give you, you know, a pat on the back? Your, your self-esteem would be rising up when what you say actually comes true? So why? Well, we have to begin to study what's going on. Where is he supposed to be heading toward? The Syrian nation. And then if you study the Assyrian nation, you begin to realize Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian people, and they were the enemy of Israel. Now, Assyria was not a country he felt he could minister to. He's like, mm-mm, mm-mm. I mean, he had a ministry that was going well there in Gath-Hefer. 
And all of a sudden, God had to come in and mess with, you know, mess it all up for him. He was all excited. He, he had a great ministry. Here he's going to the king and telling the king this is going to happen, and it happens. I mean, ministry was going great, and God comes in and messes with it, and his answer is, no, I can't do that. Now, it's kind of fun when your five-and-a-half-year-old goes, no. Kind of gives you that look, you know. And you're like, excuse me, little man, you know. And you deal with that as a parent. But, I mean, here he's doing this to God. Or maybe he thought, I don't care what God says. And it's kind of interesting. Chapter 4, you're going to find something he feared more than the Assyrians. And it did come true. And Jonah could not stand it. And I'm going to leave that alone until we get to chapter 4. But it's very interesting. Now, the Assyrians, they were a brutal people. A hundred years before, the Assyrians were coming in and raiding the northern kingdoms of Israel, okay? They were coming and taking, along, you know, taking away certain people and stuff and taking away the cream of the crop in a sense. So his family was probably one of the victims of the Assyrians' brutality. Okay, the Assyrians attack first, and then eventually Babylon comes down and attacks and takes away the rest of them. But it's kind of interesting. They were brutal, when they came to a city, they were so brutal that there are several accounts of them killing, you know, an entire city just wipes them out completely. And then there are stories of cities killing themselves so they wouldn't be taken by the Assyrians. They would capture a city and build a pyramid outside of the city. And you think, oh, cool, cool little pyramid. And then as you get closer, you would understand it's from the heads of the people of that city. Okay, now I'm not trying to be graphic. I'm just trying to get you to understand what type of people they are. The message, don't mess with us. That's what the Assyrians were saying. See this pyramid? Yeah, don't mess with us. There were rumors in the palaces of the Assyrians that the upholstery on the chairs and the little couches that they, yes, they had couches back then, was made out of Israelite skin. I'll just leave it there. Then God says to Jonah, by the way, go to the capital and preach against them. How would you feel? Now, I don't know what's going on through Jonah's head. We don't really get into his head, his thoughts until the next chapter. But it'd be very interesting, this little Hebrew you know, prophet going to Nineveh to walk the streets and say, the Hebrew God that I serve is going to destroy you. Now, what would the equivalent of this be? Telling a Polish-born Jew to, in 1939 to go to Berlin to preach against Hitler? It just wouldn't happen, would it? Or how about a political figure going to Russia right now and preaching against uh, uh, the government there? Oh, wait. Yeah, that just happened. They tried to poison him. When that didn't work, he landed back in Russia and they arrested him. You just don't do that, do you? So Jonah takes off. 
Now, the problem for Jonah is God didn't ask him, God didn't ask him, hey, you don't have to if you don't want to. I would like for you to go blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. God told him this is what you're supposed to do. Go and do this. So Jonah goes down to Joppa, and we see in the text that Jonah goes down and down and down. And he bottoms out in a very unusual spot. Joppa is the same place that Peter would be 750 years later. And remember Peter going to the house of the tanner, and he's up on top of the roof. I think it's somewhere around Acts 10. And he got a vision about ministering to Gentiles. And for a Jew, that was kind of a no-no type of situation. And here Peter is in the same city as Jonah was struggling and Peter makes, you know, has to make the same decision. Do I go to the enemy? Because the enemy for the Jews at that point were Gentiles. Anybody who wasn't a Jew was an enemy. Okay, so you, you kind of had to make that decision. Now, by going in that direction, by running, we see that Jonah believed he could run away from God. Otherwise, uh, otherwise why would you run, right? So therefore, he believed he could run away from God. See, when somebody is running away from God in disobedience and they decide to go against God, they usually you know, run in the opposite direction and usually very fast. His hope is that he can run fast enough and far enough where God can't reach him to be able to speak to him or, and to judge him. And Jonah's like a little kid playing hide and seek. You know, little kids, when they're really young, what do they do? Okay, I'll go hide. And they think they've hidden, right? Or in our house, what they would do is they would go hide next to the couch, and their bottoms would be, you know, over against the wall next to the couch, underneath the thing, and their bottoms would be totally sticking out, you know? But their head is hidden, you know? I, okay, I think it's funny when kids do that. Maybe you don't, I don't know. But he's running away from shelter. He's running away from God's protection. He's running away from God's guidance. And Jonah has discovered something else that many of us know. That if we want to run away from God and we're willing to pay, Satan will always have a, sh you know, a ship in port ready to take you. If you want to run and you're willing to pay, it it'll be there. And one thing I've learned is we don't run away from God without paying. We don't realize it, but we pay for it. He will allow you to do it, and Satan will have a ship waiting. It's fascinating that, to, to think that Jonah might have played, you know, God, you know, played the, the God's will game. You know what I mean? Lord, if it's your will, I'm about to go down to Joppa. And if it's your will, don't let me leave this place. You know, like keep me here and prevent me from going down the Joppa. And we get on the road, and guess what? We're headed to Joppa. It must be God's will. God allowed it. But the problem is you're still outside of God's will. And then we go, Lord, if it's your wills, cause something to happen to me, you know, to stop me from getting to Joppa. And, you know, I'm diligent, diligently seeking you here, Lord. And God is just silent because he's already told you what to do. And we make it completely to Joppa. 
Lord, if it's your will, don't let a ship be there waiting for me. And all of a sudden, there's a ship. Lord, if it's your will, don't let me afford the ticket. And guess what? The exact amount of money I had in my pocket is exactly what the ticket cost. Well, that must be an open door. It must be God. Lord, if it's your will, don't let this ship leave. Oh, well, it's leaving. It must be God's will. Well, God didn't stop him. So he probably thought he was getting away from, you know, getting away with it. Maybe Jehovah is more of a land god and not a sea god, you know. Maybe it's like a, uh, like a cell phone. You can't reach me. I'm out of coverage out here. He's a Hebrew god, maybe. Go to Spain, maybe he doesn't speak Spanish. I don't know. Verse 4, it says, And the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up, you idiot, and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Now, the first thing I noticed, <laughs> you know, I see is how cool God is in all of this. God could have said, fine, you don't want to be used. You want to run away. I'll let you. I'll go find somebody else to do that. You don't deserve it. But God doesn't do that. God could have sunk the boat. But the cool thing about this is, the amazing thing about this is, God actually chases Jonah down. He pursues him. And this is what the Lord has done for so many of us. We're, you know, we're going along, serving the Lord, and all of a sudden, wham, we're just hit from the side. And something just throws us for a loop, either a crisis or something else, and we stop serving God all of a sudden. And then God works. It's not, you know, sometimes it, maybe it's immediate, sometimes it, it's a little time, but God comes and tracks us down and draws us back. And when he does, it doesn't feel so gentle sometimes. Sometimes it's like he's got me by the scruff of the neck and pulling me through that. Sometimes it's, it's a huge storm that we have to go through for God to bring us back, and it even causes us to doubt God even more. Kind of like, I'm even in more of a mess now. Forgetting that we were the ones that walked to Joppa. Forgetting that we paid the fare, we got on the boat, and now all of a sudden it's God's fault because life is falling apart. And the storm rages. And the storm is really mercy. We just can't tell it's mercy. The storm is a bad storm. And these sailors were for Phoenicians. These were, were seagoing people. And for them to take their, their, um, their, their, their cargo and throw it overboard, I mean, that, that's a huge deal. I mean, how many ships want to take what they're hauling and just throw it into the ocean? I mean, there goes all your profit, Right? That's what they were doing. They were afraid. They were poly, polytheistic uh, believing people. In other words, they believed in, in multiple gods. So you don't have to, uh, to worship all of them. You just kind of pick your favorites. Well, one of their gods was Baal. He was the god of the sky. 
So, you know, you can imagine the captain going, okay, who, who's the bell god? Okay, you, you pray to bell. You, you worship him. You pray to him. Get him to stop the wind. Okay, who believes in the Neptune god? The god of the sea, Poseidon, who, okay, okay, you need to cry out to him. You pray for that. Tell, you know, so then they start throwing all their cargo over, trying to lighten the ship. And then in the middle of all this, they find Jonah. And he's asleep, which is really weird. I mean, if the sailors can't sleep, why could Jonah sleep? I mean, have you ever been on the water during a storm? The waves just throwing you around? It's not an easy thing to do to, to sleep in a storm. The captain is like, get up, pray to your God. Verse 7, it says, Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast, cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Oh, no. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you from, or are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So you're all out there praying all these other little gods that aren't really true gods. I actually worship the one who made it all. You can imagine them thinking, oh, whew. okay, we got the God right here. Why don't you start praying? It's kind of funny, the, the Amplified Version says, I worship and fear the Lord. I'm sure you do at this point. He's busted by unbelievers here. One thing, it's, you know, one thing is to be busted by your mom or your dad. Another thing to be busted by, by another Christian, you know, somebody in church going, dude, what you're doing here, that's, that's wrong. You need to you know, to be called out, and then we get all like, I can't believe they told me that. I don't like them. I'm going to sit on the other side of the church. Or eventually you go, I'm going to move to another church just because they told me I was doing something wrong, which I know is wrong. You see the pattern there? But then it's a whole other thing to be busted by unbelievers. Somebody goes, I thought you were a Christian, and look at what you're doing. That doesn't say Christian to me. Jonah's busted by unbelievers here. He goes, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So they're like, okay, we got that figured out. This guy's done something to get his God upset. Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Verse 12, he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and I will become calm, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault, and this great storm has come upon you. This, this verse 12 is a scary thought. Just pick me up and throw me into the sea. I'm done. I'm over with. A couple of thoughts. One, why didn't he jump overboard himself, Right? Now he's involving somebody else. Why put it on them? Or how about why didn't he just repent? Why have them do the dirty work instead of just repenting of his own actions? Guys, just turn around, take me back to Joppa. The sea will just cease because I get, there's something God told me to do and I need to go do it. Just turn it around. 
I bet the sea would have calmed down. God has brought the storm, and until Jonah does what he's called him to do, God will not stop causing problems for Jonah until he obeys. Either the storm is going to kill him or he's going to obey. And, you know, we talk so much about God being gentle and loving, but you know what? There's times when our God is a ferocious God. Our God is a jealous God. Our God stands up and says, no! We don't like that. My kids don't like it when I get on them. The little one, he just starts, if I get loud with him, or I get like, hey, you need to listen, you know, he just starts, wants to come give me a hug. That's fine right at this age. Now, if he's 22, still doing that, we got a problem. But right now, but we don't like it when somebody says no or throws up a roadblock. God is telling him, I love you too much to allow you to rebel, to, 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 to go away, to, to rebel for me. You know, therefore, your life is going to be miserable until you change. But Jonah, it's kind of interesting. He would rather die than repent. He is not going to go to Nineveh. Throw me overboard. It's better for all of us. Now, automatically, when we want to apply the story to our enemy, if they would just blah, blah, blah. If the Ninevites wouldn't have done da 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 But the story's about us. It's about us following God's things, not the enemy. I mean, the enemy of this story is who? The nasty Assyrians. They deserve this kind of stuff, not the prophet of God. Except for one thing. This prophet already knows God. And God's trying to get the Assyrians to come back to him. Verse 13, it says, instead, the men did their best to row back to land. You got to hand it to these, these guys. They are trying. They cared enough to try. But they could not, for the sea, sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord. It's kind of interesting because they don't know God, and they're crying out to God. Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, Lord, have done as you please. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. So now you have people who are sitting there going, God, don't hold, us against, don't hold it against us. We're having to do this to save our own lives. So, you're, so, you know, you have your issue, and now it's affecting others around. The first observation is this, is this is a miracle for these guys to see. Several miracles have already happened, but this is the first one that these guys see. And how, you know, and this is how it is for us. Miracles happen, and many times we don't see those miracles. Verse 16, it says, at this, the men, uh, men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. And their assumption is this. God is angry. God causes a storm. The problem is thrown overboard. A man is sacrificed. Therefore, problem solved. But Jonah knew something. He knew that God would not make them pay for his sin because he knew God. What these guys didn't know is that God's grace was there for Jonah, that God was rescuing Jonah, but God's grace was also there for them. Now, verse 17, it says, Now the Lord provided huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three 
nights. Well, as far as the text goes, we're going to stop right there and we'll pick up next week. But I want to end, you know, I want to say a few things in closing here. I think one question or several kind of, one group of questions that comes to mind is this. How active do I really believe that God is in my life? That's a question we need to be asking. How active is God in my life? Do I really believe that God sees me? Me as an individual, do I believe that God sees me? Or are there places that I can hide from God? Do I really truly believe that God is interested in my actions and that God, you know, and that God has told me to do certain things or do I just believe that this is an Old Testament story that doesn't apply to me? The other question I have, our group, I would ask for anyone that is running from God and whatever reason you're using for running from God, you know that you're currently running from God. Whether you're in the boat with the covers over your head, hoping it will just go away, or whether you're saying, just throw me overboard, I'm not going to obey, I don't like what he told me to do, I guess my question would be to that person is, what price have you paid or are you paying for that disobedience? Everyone chooses to disobey God at one point or another. Sometimes it's little things, sometimes it's big things. And we pay a price. What kind of price are you paying right now? What kind of price do we pay for disobedience? And I guess the last thing that comes to mind is this. How many other people are in the storm with you? I mean, this is your storm. It's being caused by your actions, and yet these innocent sailors are in the boat with you. So then extrapolate that out to us. Our family, they're in the boat with us. Our job, they're in the boat with us. Our extended family, our friends, our actions affect others. Why do innocents have to go through your storm? And then when will you face God alone and say, God, I'm running from you and I have my reasons? And God says, I know your reasons. I know you. I know you. But I want to do something about it. I want to draw you back to me. This storm is to draw you back to worshiping me. And it's a process. We're going to see we're going to see it through four different chapters, four different weeks here of what the process Jonah goes through. And at the very end, we're still going to be lingering with a question, the very last question I'll give you at the end of this series. I won't ask it now, but we're going to be lingering that question. It's a question each one of us has to ask. God has a reason we are here in this life. Sometimes it's a specific job. I want you to go and do this. Sometimes it's a specific way of living. I want you to live in obedience because your living in obedience has an effect on these people. 
And it'll draw these people to me if you live in obedience. Sometimes it's the, the prophet. You need to get out there on the street corner. You need to say something about who God is. And it's going to draw certain people. God has a reason for each one of us. And the question is, are we doing what God asks us to do or not? That means, are we running from God or are we not running from God? And the greatest thing is God has enough grace and enough power enough love, enough, uh, enough mercy, that when you do wrong, and we all, each one of us, will do wrong, that when we come back to him, he just puts his loving arms around us and says, it's okay, brother. It's okay, sister. I love you. You're mine. That is the God that we serve. Amen? Amen. Well, why don't you stand, and we will pray, and the worship team will Finish us up. Lord, we just thank you so much for the stories of, of Jonah and many other in the Bible that went against your ways and how you chase after us, how you want to draw us to you. Lord, I pray for any of those that are, that are going the wrong direction, that you gently bring them back to you. Or maybe you need to do it aggressive, Lord. You need to cause a storm for them to, to come back to you, Lord. But I, I pray that when that person finally looks to you, that, that, that they are overwhelmed by your mercy and your grace and your love because you're such a loving God. Now the Lord bless you and the Lord keeps you. The Lord's face shine down upon you and may you recognize it when you come back to him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.